Join fellow industry decision makers this June 20th to 22nd in St. Louis, Missouri for CBP Connects presented by Arrive POS. Half networking, half education, this is your chance to build relationships with those who can help you be even more successful. Interactive workshops, a mini trade show, and nightly receptions with drinks on CBP. Register now at cbpconnects.com. That's cbpconnects.com. See you in St. Louis. Welcome, everyone, and good morning. Um, my name is Evan Eneman. We're here for the conversation with the craft beer professionals and the Cannabis Beverage Association. So good morning. I'll do a quick introduction for the CBA, and then I'll let our other panelists do an introduction as well. So the Cannabis Beverage Association is a national nonprofit trade association established to represent and support the rapidly growing cannabis beverage industry. Our mission is to lead the cannabis beverage industry through programs that promote the business sector, educate, and protect public health. Essentially, we are the collective voice for cannabis beverage uh, in the U.S., and we do also support a lot of global efforts to create some synergies between the various disparate markets at this time. So without further ado, I will let my panelists introduce themselves and we'll get into a discussion about cannabis beverages. So Tracy, let's start with you. Hi, everybody. I'm Tracy Mason. I'm the founder and CEO of House of Saka. We make um, the world's first and only alcohol-removed cannabis-infused wines from Napa Valley. Um, in addition, um, we are expanding our portfolio into the general market as a CBD-enriched product, as well as a non-alc, high-end wine. Um, and I also have a lot of experience in the brewing industry, um, working directly now with Ace Cider and running that business um, as part of a joint partnership with um, Vintage Wine Estates, which owns Ace Cider. Um, but I started my career very young, uh, working for Coors. So I um, kind of been there, done that. So I'm excited to speak with you all today. Great. Thank you, Chris. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Anderson. I'm uh... With Bev Zero, I run their uh, brewing operations, and uh, I'm also uh, representing Harmony Craft Brands as well. Uh, I do uh, most of their production when whenever we uh, have a client that's looking to launch into into the market. Thank you, Chris. And again, my name is Evan Eneman. I'm the founder and CEO of Sands Lane, and we run uh, Harmony Craft Beverages as well, which is a partnership. As a beverage brand incubator and accelerator, um, we've launched now three brands in market cannabis infused beverages. Uh, one is a deacalized cider uh, that's called Mollus. Uh, the other is a ready to drink cocktail beverage, which is called Klaus. And the third is a uh, wine uh, brand called Herbasi. So some experience in bringing some, some cannabis infused beverage brands to market. The incubator accelerator crosses both uh, non-alcoholic and functional infused beverages, which includes cannabis. So without further ado, let's jump into things. And Tracy, if you could maybe kick us off with a, a broad overview of the state of cannabis and, and maybe the differences between cannabis and hemp and how that's being uh, currently sold in market. Um, well, gosh, that's a that's a pretty big topic. <laughs> um, you know, the cannabis infused beverage category, um, well, extremely nascent right now, um, I think has the biggest potential to be the number one way people will consume cannabis in the future. 
um, for a variety of reasons, um, but most of which is if you look at, if we use alcohol and tobacco as our backstop and, and how we inform ourselves about what the future is going to look like, you look at the way that combustibles have been so thoroughly villainized, um, whether that's tobacco or vapes or anything. And so the most common uses of the way people are consuming cannabis now, I think ultimately as we get, as we continue the march towards federal legalization, that's going to be an issue. Um, in addition, the, the edibles, which are the second biggest category, um, their appeal to children is so, so clear um, and obvious that that also, I think, is, has, has a big problem. But, you know, we've really focused on creating sophisticated adult beverages for sophisticated adults. And so I don't think any, there's any, any crossover really between what we're doing in the cannabis space versus um, other categories. Um, in, in, in CBD, it's interesting because the, the markets are very similar um, in the sense that the legal markets where when I say legal, I mean um, adult use markets are paralleling uh, with CBD infused beverages as well. So there's about 18 states right now where you can sell CBD infused beverages. The legal, the, it's a little bit wishy-washy in terms of what you can actually call it um, for the products that we're releasing to market in the next couple of weeks. Um, we're calling them hemp extract infused um, just because in certain states you can say CBD and others you can't. So <coughs> Live efficiencies, we're calling it hemp extract infused. Um, but there are tremendous benefits to CBD if it's used in the right way. Um, the challenge I think we, that we have as an industry is to ensure that CBD is actually effective um, and it's not just a buzzword. Um, because I think we, we run a very, 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 very strong risk of CBD being the snake oil of our generation in the sense that if we don't, we're not clear about what CBD actually does. And if we're not really, if we're not very specific on the amount of dosage that's going into each of our products, um, then, and people aren't actually feeling the effects of CBD, you know, in relax, relaxation mode and a focus mode or whatever effect driven um, combination we want, uh, there's a challenge there too. So I think as operators, um, you know, Evan, you and I, known each other for a while now as operators, there's a lot on our plates in terms of being responsible and and delivering the message and delivering the category in a way that makes sense and that really drives, I think, ultimately consumer acceptance um, to the category. Yeah, and there's um, there's a lot of challenges which we'll, we'll get into uh, during the conversation, but when, when we look at the broad landscape, it's really interesting how many different types of beverages are seeing come into market and it's really now bifurcating the market into what is a regulated cannabis space where people think of as traditional thc only beverages and then there's the regulated hemp space which is what your point was related to cbd and the various regulatory frameworks that we have to really think about to bring these two regulated products to market because hemp and cbd is still regulated in, in many ways and not just at a, a federal level under the farm bill, but also at, at state levels too. So, but watching people come out with innovative brands and products, whether it be, you know, a CBD water all the way to a really potent, what looks like a, a five hour energy shot with hundred milligrams of, you know, a THC infused beverage, you, you see this broad range of um, what's starting to mimic traditional BevAlk and even some traditional just 
you know, beverages categories in general. So um, it'll be interesting to see how many more brands and products come to market. And, and in this case, there's really an interesting parallel to a, a movement in the non-alcoholic or low alcoholic space, specifically with beer. And that's two different ways of getting beer prepared to be brought to market. So in the cannabis space, we can't have any alcohol in our beverages before they're infused. So there's, you know, some challenges there, but there are some techniques to creating a good base product. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And Chris will, will point to you for that. It's interesting. Beer has not taken up a large segment of the category yet in cannabis specifically. Um, so it'll be interesting to see why that is. And we've had a few that have started and, and Chris, you, you've known a few and would love to get your thoughts on those that have started and, and who hasn't, but, Maybe let's talk about the process for creating a, a good non-alcoholic beer. What are some of the methods? What are things that you're seeing in market that are working well and others that haven't held up to creating a good base for infused beverages? Yeah, I think the key there is good. Um, you know, I think uh, in, in my opinion, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, kind of leaning towards the dealkalization piece in terms of quality um, and, and the flavor being paramount. Um, of course, there's arrested fermentation, which is probably the most common and the easiest to do within an existing brewing facility um, because you really don't need to buy anything other than yeast or uh, a different malt per se. Um, the next step from that would probably be filtration, um, which would be a, a complex set of filters um, that would basically uh, remove the alcohol and separate the NA stream in another uh in another stream as well as the alcohol comes off. Um, usually, and if you're planting this in a brewing facility, uh, that process would water back the the, the process removed or, or the uh, permeate piece. So anything um, would, you know, if you're running a 7% beer or a 5% beer, a 5% uh, seltzer comes out the other end. You know, that's a, the limitation on that. Um, without that, you would probably require uh, a, a a, a dealkalization uh, permit, um, which would be a, a DSP or distillation permit to, to be able to do the process that, that we do with BevZero, which is uh, removing the alcohol. Um, and uh, essentially, we do that in wine, beer, and cider. Um, and we feel like it's the best uh, approach um, because we basically take any beer down to a zero zero state, and then we can build back with the very first product that, that uh comes off during distillation, which is the essence or the volatile aroma capture. Um, so that that piece allows us to basically build back in whatever uh, integrity of the product that we're running into the into the we call it the go low is the machine that we that we run. Um, but regardless if we're doing that or, or using uh, an SEC, a spinning cone column, um, the process is is literally the same in terms of, you know, building back with a certain constituent of of whatever you're running through. So, um, you know, I, I'm kind of impartial, um, mostly because I started out in the industry working with filtration and I thought that that was the cat's meow. Um, I worked for uh, a, a company for about five years doing all the development um, using that technology. And, and at the time, you know, um, this type of distillation wasn't really prominent. And, uh, and then to kind of come full circle to where we're at today, I, I feel really good about where we're at. And, um, certainly certainly the products that are being produced so so tracy maybe speak a little bit so that process chris is mentioning for beer is, is very similar to what's going to happen in wine so you're going to de-alk 
down to a base product, build back to what you want, but then a very critical step in that, in addition to finding the right base product that you want to have for the infusion, can you speak a little bit to the process of now infusing that base product that you've developed? What, what does your process look like for House of Saka or for other brands that you've overseen? Well, I mean, I think, you know, honestly, with we're working right now on an alcohol removed CBD and re- infused um, ACE cider. And, and I actually found that because, you know, cider is only about 5% alcohol, you're not losing as much when you take the alcohol away. Um, comparative to wine, which is anywhere between 12 to 16%, depending on what they put on the label. But, um, but the truth is that you lose quite a bit um, when you remove alcohol, especially from wine, because you're losing a perception of sweetness, you're losing a perception of weight on your palate. Um, and, and so when you remove the alcohol, building back those flavor components, and even with some of the reserve essence that, um, that Chris talked about earlier, you still have to be super aware of the, the flavor um, the flavor compounds that you're really targeting. Um, and so we work with natural flavors and essences and um, to, to, to kind of build back those flavor compounds. And then it becomes equally challenging because with when you're using a CBD emulsion, you're, um, you're getting a bit of bitterness from, the emul- from what it is that creates um, the emulsion itself. So it's not necessarily the cannabis, it's actually the the materials that you use to actually break those those that cannabis oil down into microscopic particles, and the challenge is the bigger those particles, the less bitter it is. Um, and but what you give up in exchange for a lack of bitterness is you give up clarity. Um, so the clearer the product, the more surface area you have on your tongue, the more bitter it becomes. And and those those in fairness, those technologies are improving literally every day. I mean, where we were three years ago compared to where we are now is vastly different. Um, so it's not when you're, when you're building back a wine compound or a cider compound, you know, you're not just looking at how do I make this, how do I make this taste sort of like wine? You know, even though it's technically not wine anymore, it's, it's how do I make that those flavor compounds also marry to uh, the emulsion itself and make sure that they're, they're working together as opposed to hitting up against each other. Um, and I think with certain varietals, it's easier. You know, I think with like a Sauvignon Blanc that already has that sort of like grassy um, flavor to it, it's easier. But for a rosé, which is our number one seller, it's actually very hard because there's not a lot of meat on that bone. You know, if you think about it, there's a lot with Chardonnay. There's a lot with Sauvignon Blanc. There's a lot with Cabernet. But with rosé, everyone's perception of what a rosé should taste like is different. Um, And also... You know, so then targeting those specific flavors isn't as easy. Whereas Chardonnay, you can say, oh, I want it to taste like butter or popcorn or oak or Cabernet. You want it to be tannic and oaky and um, whereas uh, rosé is hard. So, you know, the, all this to say that, um, well, it's really fun and interesting prog- process. It's also a very difficult one. Um, and we've been really fortunate to be able to have relied on, on Bev Zero really since we thought about it, you know, since we were just thinking about what we wanted to do with House of Saka. So it's been a really great partnership. So so it sounds like that the the base product, A, is a really difficult product to get locked in because you're now changing the profile of what a distilled wine, beer, spirit would look like and how we're used to that on our palate and the flavor profiles and everything else. So we're changing our own personal 
expectations of what we're about to drink, which is an interesting challenge that we'll have to solve for. Um, but then also the infusion, the emulsion part is a really challenging part of this process. And then to marry those two together is what you're talking about, finding a really balanced, high quality beverage as the as it will bring to market. So with the emulsion technology or water soluble technologies, what are those things that you're seeing right now on the infusion side that that's interesting you in that advancement of that technology? Is it the same nanotechnology early onset? Is it, you know, some form of water soluble so you don't have that carrier uh, oil or whatever it may be? What are you seeing in this space now? I mean, I think that the, the, the industry is moving at the speed of light. I mean, um, and so water soluble is really, really interesting to me. Um, I think part of the challenge that I have personally and professionally is that I'm highly loyal. And so um, because, again, BevZero and Vertos, our, our infusion partner, has been with us since the beginning, have worked so closely with us. Um, I kind of struggle with it because I, I want to remain loyal to those who have been loyal to me. Um, that said, um, it's all about what the consumer experience is, right? And what I love about um, nanotechnology is the early onset. It's that, you know, you feel the effects within five to 15 minutes like you would a glass of wine. Um, and I also like the, the you know, the, the relatively fast offset. So you're not as high for as long. Um, but what I don't like, you know, honestly, is the the flavor component that we have to kind of combat, if you will, um, and really think through of how we're gonna how we're gonna marry to the flavor compounds that we're trying to create in our products. Um, so I think the technology is improving, and we're always always looking and tasting and evaluating what the next big thing will be. But I will tell you that, you know, every time we do a vintage, you know, every new vintage, so now we're going to be on our fourth vintage of, of Saka Pink that we're producing next month. Um, it's changed, you know, and it's gotten better. And so, and and I think, you know, I created it, so it's, I'm a little biased, but uh, I, I think the product was amazing to begin with and it just gets better and better. And I think for those who are entering the in, in space or interested in entering the space, they're in a much better place than you and I were, Evan, you know, five years ago. Um, so it's really exciting place to be. Well, that's a great perspective. Um, and Chris, maybe, maybe we'll turn back to you and before we, we talk about the market a little bit more and, and really understand some of the things that you've brought up as well in the past in our conversations and, and you alluded to it uh, in, in some of the intro piece here, which is what are some of the challenges to bring a high quality beer? in a cannabis infused model to market, given some of those challenges of maintaining flavor and, and mouthfeel and, and all these different profiles that you want to have in a high quality beer and and which ones maybe stand up better to a dealkalization or an arrested fermentation and then ultimately an infusion that might, might fit with the, the cannabis infused side of either CBD or THC. I mean, on the positive side, uh, we can formulate specifically uh, beer versus, you know, cider or, or even wine specifically for the DELC piece. So we can, we can formulate for the, the known quotients that are going to be happening within this distillation unit. So we know that that uh, concentration of hops is going to be a problem um, and that, that we're going to have to do re a reduction in, in the bittering piece, uh, especially when we infuse more cannabis. Um, and then secondly, you know, loss of head retention and loss of foam retention 
and mouthfeel. All these things um, are way are are we have a means to circumvent those by formulating and doing doing this in the front end with with our building. Um, you know, unfortunately, with wine and cider, you can't do that. Um, and, and that that's probably the biggest difficulty. The the second thing that I can think of is the the, the you know obviously with losing one of our copac um, manufacturing facilities in Northern California, it's really uh, put a hamper on the ability to get product into market. And uh, you know certainly with anything that is uh, is produced, dealkalized, and then shipped to a facility. You know that poses another uh, cost, another uh, issue with potential oxidation. Um, beer, beer is a, is a lot more fragile than than wine or cider in terms of that, um, and and it tasting poorly by the time it arrives. So you really have to be uh, cognizant of that and and uh, and do a very good job of getting all the. Uh, the oxygen out of the vessel that it's going into your transfer vessel that you're going to be moving it to. You know, I don't, I can't think of a single facility in the state that that has a brewing facility on the same grounds as the production facility. Um, but obviously in a perfect world um, that that's what needs to happen. Having, having it be very close by would be ideal so that you could kind of uh, work, work around that, that issue. But uh, but that's certainly the biggest problem with beer is, is just, you know, getting it from point A to point B to where you can finish it, process it, infuse it um, and uh, and have have it be successful. I know, you know, right now I, I have one facility in the entire state that I'm driving anybody that's doing doing infused beer to. So, you know, it makes it really tough. Um, I wouldn't send uh, anybody to just any facility. Um, I'm, I've been hearing about a new facility coming online that's going to be pretty state-of-the-art down in L.A., but in terms of uh, when they're going to be online, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, right now there's really one player in the entire game in terms of the, the state of California that can even handle beer and do it successfully, which makes it very difficult. Yeah, well, you, you talked about some specific product challenges, and, and maybe even the bigger one is the supply chain challenges that we have in the infused category maybe we'll, we'll speak to that a little bit you mentioned california so there are a few co-packers that are coming online most of whom are looking to really pack their own brands not necessarily be a co-packer but they're they're offering up you know some line time um what what is the challenge that you see if we don't have enough line time in, in bringing something that normally is a maybe a higher volume type product like a beer on the market is that going to limit the ability for brewers to get to an infused cannabis space, whether it's craft or, or not? Or do you think we're going to have more infrastructure built, not just in California, but in other key markets? I mean, we could look at Colorado and Washington and the Northeast. And as markets come online, what, what's your thought around getting enough manufacturing facilities to support the demand? Is there the demand? I mean, I think we know very well and just pure across the board alcohol, consumers are looking to explore non-alcoholic and other types of alternative adult beverages. So what are your thoughts on the supply chain side for manufacturing specifically? Yeah, it seems to be a problem. It doesn't doesn't seem like it's going to go away. It seems like it's going to continue to to rear its, its head. Um, you know, I think sooner or later, people are going to understand that, um, you know, if they make the investment in the production facility, that filling that line time, um, you know, 
I'm assuming that typically what you're going to see is somebody that is producing their own brands and then has uh, that that time when they're, they're not running their own product. And uh, I'm assuming you're going to see a lot more of that in the future where people are, are you know, building out a facility um, specifically for their own needs. I can see, think of about three or four that are going to be coming online in, in the next six months. Um, that will be that will be the case. Now, how, how long is that going to last and how long can, uh, you know, a brewer or a manufacturer rely on them to be a, a COPAC partner? You know, that's really uh, the tough part because, you know, as soon as that brand's velocity grows to the point where they can no longer do it, they just cut you off. And that's similar to what happened with this uh, co-packer that shut down in Northern California, you know, um, when, when they, when they sold out. So I, I think you'll see more of that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't really see anybody biting off and, and building a facility specifically for uh, production on their own, like, like what this Northern California uh, facility did. Okay. Um, I think, it almost wholeheartedly the investment makes more sense when you have uh, something to rely on to to keep some production rolling. Um, but, you know, I think overall, I think in the future, I think it's going to be more or less um, that kind of capacity where we're, we're seeing uh, production facilities opening that, that are catering to their own needs, but also can can cater to some of the other uh, folks needs as well. So in, in your view, and Trace, we'd love to get your perspective on this too, does cannabis-infused beverages or even more narrowly cannabis-infused beer, it, it sounds like it looks much more like a very localized or even regionalized craft beer market in, in the sense that you're going to have multiple small producers in different markets, whether it's creating seasonality within their, their profile or whatever it may be very differently. Is that is that what you see as the future, at least in the immediate term, for uh, you know cannabis-infused beer, or do you see more of that top-down, you know, ABI Molson Coors model, sort of trying to bring consistent branding across the U.S. very quickly? I don't. I don't see those guys getting into the game until it's full legal. Um, I, I think it's going to stay, you know, somewhat uh, regulated in that into that space, at least for now. Um, but I think I think once it once it get, goes full legal and in most states, I think those guys are going to certainly, you know, uh, you know, a use investments that they already have existing to produce the beer and then and then build other uh, offsite infusion facilities to, to uh, meet the need. But I just don't see them making that investment right now and in the state we're in because that, yeah, it just seems to be that we're stuck in this this cycle that that you know we have a lot of brands that want to get to market but are unable to just because of the ability to get copac. Yeah. So Tracy, I mean, cannabis beverages within the broader cannabis space is you know probably sub two percent of the category broadly, uh, but we're growing very rapidly. I think it's up almost over three hundred fifty percent in the last two to three years. So we have significant year-on-year -year growth. What are some of those challenges, whether it be supply chain, retail choke points that you see for infused beverage brands and, and what are the, the ways that we can maneuver those or outmaneuver them? I mean, gosh, there's so many chokeholds, if you will, um, in the space. Um, everything from, as Chris articulated, getting the product in a bottle um, and then getting it to market, getting paid for that product once it's in market. Um, it's, it's a very, very complicated and it's not for the faint of heart.
by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think when when you enter the space, um, for those of those of you who are listening to this, I think you have to come at it with a, an, an extreme, understand that nothing that you think is gonna happen will happen. And um, like any innovation, it's, it takes time to really build that momentum. Um, I think that, you know, I think the parallel that you made between um, craft breweries, you know, uh, the regionalization of them is an excellent point. And I think what's also driving that is because when you think about a brand, you know, any real brand that you know that you that you are a, akin to, if you will, whether it's the car you drive or the clothes you wear or the glasses you wear, whatever that looks like, um, it's always tied to something. You know, real brands are tied to provenance. And so they're tied to a specific place, you know, whether it's Provence or Paris or Milan or Germany or whatever it is. And um, with cannabis, because the base product has to be from the state. It's really hard to achieve that notion of provenance, which means it's really hard to build a real brand. I mean, I think House of Saka kind of stands alone in that respect because we don't rely on the cannabis to deliver that provenance. We, we rely on Napa Valley, our base product, you know? So Napa Valley translates whether you're in Michigan or whether you're in California or in your Massachusetts, um, whereas the cannabis grown there doesn't, right? And so, um, I think it's, it's, it's going to take time, but we will get there. Um, and I think big players coming into the scene, I mean, they're already dabbling in it, right. Whether it's Constellation or, or InBev or, or whomever, um, they're dabbling and they're dabbling, you know, with an eye on full legalization. But I do think full legalization is a way, way, way off. I don't see it happening, um, in at least in the next five years. Um, but I do see um, regulations loosening up. I see banking loosening up. I see interstate commerce potentially loosening up. But I don't see, um, and especially with adjacent states like the West Coast, I could see us, you know, trading cannabis between Nevada and, and Oregon and Washington. Um, but in the meantime, you know, you have to have extreme stick-to-itiveness and you have to be really nimble and figure out how to continue to thrive and build a brand in a very, very challenging environment. Um, and if you don't have that level of stick-to-itiveness, um, you're, you're, you're not gonna win, you know? Um, and I'm not, I'm not pretending that I know that House of Sock is gonna win, um, but I do know that we've spent a tremendous amount of time and resources, and I don't mean financial resources, I mean literally intellectual resources, in figuring out backstops to allow us to continue to build our business while we're waiting for the cannabis industry to figure itself out. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic right now, building brand to your point, which does take time and it requires some point of reference, whether it be provenance or some story that that sort of ignites from, from that inspiration to create a brand and the narrative that, that persists for some time or some purpose behind it. So it's actually a good time to build brand if you're thinking long-term. And that's really what, you know, I know when, when people say, well, that, that all sounds great. We want to do something and they get, you know, really excited. And, and it's the time to say, oh, we're going to launch a new brand or launch a new product and the category is going to be huge. And I think we all know, yes, it will be at some point. But as brands happen, it takes either a tremendous amount of money uh, or a tremendous amount of time. And, and neither one is the 
the sole indicator of success. So what what I think is interesting in this space, and, and Tracy said it best, is stick to itiveness. You know, it's the ability to be resilient beyond any other industry category. Um, you know, beer, BevOp broadly is regulated, but it's a very clear, consistent market that's been regulated for a very long time, even though it may have differences state to state. Cannabis, however, is very, very different in that it's newly regulated and has significant differences state to state, even in the fact that you can't transport anything across state lines, with the exception of, if possible, a dealkalized based product that you're going to infuse in a different market. So there are some things within the space now that we can still work around. We can still develop products and we can still transport high quality based products. We just have to figure out, you know, the market by market dynamic if we're trying to create consistency. Um, but but therein too, I think lies a real advantage for people that are willing to build brands today. So brewers that may have a following you know, a, a real strong following can replicate that brand in other markets and tap into other day parts um, or use cases, depending on what that may be for their brands or folks looking to get in directly. And they've been, a you know, a lover of beer and they've been a beverage entrepreneur. They want to get in. Certainly there's a pathway. But I think to Tracy's point, you know, really understand this market is is a very unforgiving one and find resources that can help you find experts that have been doing this for some time and recognize that no one has the perfect answer yet. So even the biggest brands that you see in the market today, all doing different things, all very positive, because really what we're looking for is the growth of the category, which is having more beverages available for people to switch if they want to switch, or for them to explore if they want to explore a cannabis-infused beverage, um, or just have it with different use cases, You know, as we are talking about before. So. It's an exciting time. So all these challenges that we're hearing, you know, I, I kind of see them as net positives if you have that both emotional and physical fortitude to to stick with it for the next many years until supply chains correct and you know we have the retail outlets that we want to have. So, you know, to to talk about that a little bit more, um, Chris, is there you know for those brewers out there? Is there a beer that stands up better to infusion? Is there a profile of a beer? Is it a hoppier beer? What what type of format should people be considering and then ultimately look to infuse it? Yeah, going back to what, what uh, Tracy was talking about, about the emulsion itself, I, I think um, it lends better to uh, beer because beer always has that yin-yang uh, component with the malt and the, and the hop complexity which, you know, hops have always provided bitterness to balance out the, the sweetness of, of malt. Um, so with that respects, um, you know, anything hoppy, you, you nailed it on the head. Um, anything with a, a you know, that, that boasts a large terpene profile, a lot of, you know, cannabis and, and, and hops are sisters. So uh, they're both from the Cannabisier family and, and, uh, and, and a lot of the flavors are synonymous between the two. So uh, marrying that into uh, a flavor profile that works better, um, you know, is, is, is going to be more harmonious um, in beer. And, you know, that being said, you know, there is the, the issue with, with uh, another component adding to the emulsion that provides bitterness. And, you know, most people when they're, when they're brewing a beer, you know, the, the king style right now is, is a hazy IPA. 
so that there's no concern with it being clear. And in fact, you, you want to have uh, uh, the beer be hazy. So that product doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't, isn't needed. Um, and it's, it's going to lend real well to products that, that uh, don't have this clear emulsion piece, but can provide this, uh, this this full range flavor profile that would be uh, assimilate with what you personify with hops and uh you, usually what we see in in craft beer right now is you know um building in those flavor profiles um you know obviously post dealc because you don't want to flash off any of those uh aromas um um and uh yeah that's that's pretty much what we've seen uh so far so I'm I'm getting excited to hear that there there might be some more beers coming out to market, more of these flavorful profiles and, and things that I think would pair really well with you know well grown you know strain specific or cultivar specific flavor profiles. Um, so that's going to be pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to that. Um, you know, so so thinking about that and and understanding trying to bring brands to market and, and Trace, you've now been you know coming from the alcohol world been in the cannabis space for a long enough time to, to know a lot of the challenges, but also the ways to navigate those. What are some of the things that you're seeing working well for brands and then tactics that you've seen either work well from alcohol or not work well from alcohol in the cannabis space? <coughs> when you say um, what's working, do you mean from a formulation? Like marketing, yeah, like branding, marketing, things that get consumers access and interested for trial. Well, I mean, again, it, it's a very, very regulated environment. So actually talking, getting to the consumer is really difficult thing to do, you know, um, because we're so regulated in, in advertising and social media and all the ways in which that you would normally connect with a consumer, we're really highly restricted in. So you have to be really creative. Um, for us, it's about, I think, finding, being very, very, very customer, I mean, sorry, consumer specific in targeting um, who our consumer is. Um, and working with our retail partners to target that consumer in the right way. So in other words, that means like being very, very specific about the types of places where we sell our product. And though, so sort of going more narrow and deep as opposed to trying to be all things to all people, because we just frankly can't be. Um, and so leveraging their internal infrastructures um, and their customer um, their CRM models or, or whatever that looks like to, to talk to our consumer directly there. Um, and then we do some limited print, you know, but again, very specific to our demographic. Like our number one market is Marin County in, in California, which is a very, very affluent um, area. And, um, and I, it just, it's where our consumer lives. Right. Um, and so we're able to really, focus on that area. And it's really done a great job for us and in, in being able to do that. But um, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing. And again, when coming from alcohol, we're used to self, I'm used to self-regulating and, you know, carrying responsible consumption message, messaging and everything that we do. And, um, but the industry itself, I mean, there's bad actors everywhere. And, and uh, we just, we, we just try to really stay above the fray. Um, in everything we do, because ultimately, if a Diageo, if a Constellation has their eyes on us, it's it's really important that we're staying um, true to our values and making sure that we're we're self-regulating before before they even start to look at us. Because if they see us trying to uh, you know uh, trying to attract children or kids, um, that's not going to work. You know. So. 
Yeah, and, and I, I think for everyone interested in, in looking at the space is, is recognizing the regulatory differences. So you, you do have to think about the market you're operating in. California has different trade sampling and consumer sampling rules built into our regulatory framework. Michigan or Nevada or Colorado or Massachusetts, they all have different rules related to that in terms of how can you sample product through a retailer, through a specific activation for consumers, all these things become very different. Um, you, know, you can't just have a license at any event, show up and just sample your product. It's a, wow. it's a much more difficult process to, at least in California, have to partner with a retailer in order to provide trade samples that then get, you know, essentially provided by someone outside of the brand to a consumer. So it's not a very clear one-to-one -one relationship. And to your point, it, it creates some of those difficulties of, of having real brand affinity with consumers. You know, they're, they're and also, very, yeah, yeah. And I also think that the, the, there's so much confusion within the space itself by, by dispensary operators. For example, I was at, I, I was shipping something the other day and I saw that there was a new dispensary that just opened in Napa. So I popped in and I happened to have samples in my car because I partnered with a retailer and I bought the samples and I had them in my car and I walked in and I said, Hey, these are completely metric compliant. You know, they've been, they've gone through the system. They're now off the grid because you know, that they, they've been purchased, gone through the, and as a private citizen, I can give you these samples, but they wouldn't take them. Yeah. Um, even though technically legal, but they're so, con they're so worried about the regulations and I don't blame them, you know? So now I have to go and spend, you know, $200 to have, <laughs> you know, samples delivered when I was standing there with them in my hand, you know? It's yeah. Exciting. And and multiply that $200 per sample by 200 doors. Exactly. Cost to even drop a sample is exorbitant, especially for a smaller brand trying to get to market. So a, a lot of challenges that you wouldn't normally think about in our space, we, we have them. And, and um, it, it, it's, it's true because people want to make sure they're staying compliant in the event there's an opportunity to both scale their business and ultimately sell it. You don't want to have you know, too many skeletons in your closet because they're, they're always going to be some in the cannabis space initially, um, just trying to understand and navigate because the regulations change almost daily. Sometimes folks don't know if they're in compliance or not, and you have to go back and relabel or, or anything else. So, um, you know, with that, I, I certainly want to open up the floor to questions. If anyone has them, please drop them in the chat and we will certainly get to them. If it's for any one of us or all of us, please certainly do that. Um, the message I, I heard from me, Tracy, there is, is really consult with experts, not just on, you know, product formulation and, and the right emulsifications to be using and, and everything else to co-packing and, and distribution, but also in, in retail, understanding how you can get to a consumer is a really challenging space in cannabis. So working with folks who've done it in the past or who have potentially access to a targeted consumer demographic those are the ones to really work with and partner with to the extent you can. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you think about it in the context of classic marketing, right. I mean, there's, there's really two, two inter intertwined circles. You know, you have your, your consideration techniques, you know, here is a bunch of brands and you, you create an environment where as a marketer that people then add your brand to their consideration set, you know, 
when I'm buying a car, I might have seven different brands in my consideration set. And ultimately then the, the tactics that we take to convert me to actually buying that car are going to come in at the, at, at, you know, in a much more palatable way, if you will. So it'll be like, well, who has the best warranty, who has the best, you know, God, gas mileage right now, um, who has, and, and so who's going to give me the best deal. And that, ultimately, and then my experience with the product will ultimately convert me right to a buyer. And so um, for us, you know, the, what we're doing to drive that consideration factor is, you know, add me to your consideration set is by building House Osaka brand reputation, taste profile in the general market. So when you're in a, when you're in a target or when you're in a package store and you see House Osaka as a high-end um, alcohol removed wine or CBD enriched wine, um, it allows you that we have a much broader base, right. Of, of, of talking to that consumer. So that when that same consumer theoretically walks into a dispensary in California, it's like, I'm familiar with that brand. It's in my consideration set. So that conversion factor is that much easier. Mm -hmm. And so, but in the absence of having that, that broad palette to paint on that we have now with the general market, it's, it's a, it's gosh, it's super challenging. And people are doing really stupid things, you know, giving product away. And just when I say stupid, I don't mean stupid tactically. I mean, it's just not sustainable. Right. And, and it doesn't do the industry any good because, you know, when you're raising tens of millions of dollars and you're blowing it by giving your product away, you're not really creating a brand. You're just creating a, it's like a false flag, you know, if you're in the military. Yeah. <clears throat> I know, I know every brand's trying to do what, what they think is best. And, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean we're, we're, we're helping to educate the consumers in the best way that they need to be educated, um, which is a broad based way of getting them to try various products. So there, there's clearly tactics that will work for some and, and not for others. Um, there's a good question I want to get to before we, we take any others and go forward. Um, Chris was asking in regards to consumption limits on site and how do we manage the amount consumed by an individual uh, or if you're doing to-go packaging. So great question. Um, cannabis consumption lounges are very few and far between anywhere in the U.S. We are finally starting to see this come together in California and some other markets as well. Um, and we'll only speak about the regulated ones, the ones that are licensed by the state, because uh, there are many um, cannabis clubs that are unregulated or unlicensed by the state right now. So setting those aside, th there are very few. And, and right now, the way it works is that the food or beverage, in our case, beverage today has to be prepackaged. So you have to buy your can from a retailer, which is ostensibly next door to the consumption space. And then you can open up that packaged good and consume it on site, you can pour it into a class, you can do whatever you want with it, but you're buying it packaged. So there's no concept of a tap or anything yet, or you know, a gun or um, really mixology for the lack of a, a better way to look at it the same way. Um, so what we're, we're seeing now is we don't have good guidelines yet. You know, like you might have with tips and, and sort of training bartenders. Um, that is something that will be evolving as more consumption lounges come online. But it, it will be very similar to trying to understand if someone is uh, overly intoxicated, how do you help them? There is no program for that yet. So, you know, going back to Tracy, self-regulating, 
you know, operators of consumption lounges will have to define, at least today, their own best practices for monitoring and managing individual consumption on site, especially if they feel that that person may be driving or, or operating some vehicle thereafter. So, you know, good messaging, good guidelines, you know, don't consume and, and drive, all these types of things that we'll have to do and train bud tenders on is, you know, look for people that might be overly intoxicated in some way and try and understand the dynamic of, you know, how they're leaving or how they're getting home. Um, but primarily everything today is is a packaged product that then gets opened and consumed. So great question. And, and we're excited to see consumption lounges because that's how we're going to get consumers to sample more products. So um, I mean, in our area too, we, we have one of them, uh, you know, in the Coachella Valley where I live. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's different than, than BevAlk or, or, or other consumption in, in that it's going to affect everybody differently depending on how much you consume and what your tolerance are. Um, and it points back to the, to the server a little bit and, and, and to that they maybe don't understand that, you know, and, and, you know, whether somebody drinks a, a 10 milligram drink and it's completely wrecked um, where another person might be able to drink four or five of them, you know, <clears throat> it, it's going to be, it's going to be quite a bit different for each person and, and each instance. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of that's going to, going to take um certainly driven by the by the uh the cba and, and and some of the other entities that kind of uh can provide insight on that because i don't think you know your average bud tender is going to be cognizant of that or uh you know be aware of of how that's going to be affecting each person Well, let's let's speak to maybe some of the broader topics and where this is all going, and, and maybe Trace, we'll we'll start with you. Where do you see the the beverage cannabis beverage industry heading, and and how big do you think it is? Does that really compete with BevAl? Does it support it? What what do you see as the landscape there and the, and the size of the market? You know, I, well, again, the market is changing every day, um, but what we do know is that consumers who consume cannabis beverages or cannabis in general also consume alcohol um, by and large. I mean, the vast majority of consumers consume both, maybe not at the same occasion. Um, cannabis tends to be a more singular occasion or a more personal occasion, whereas BevAl tends to be more social. And obviously there's a lot more avenues through which to experience that social ability than there is with cannabis. Um, but I do see because of the social nature of beverage in general, I do see that being the delivery mechanism, as I said earlier, of the future. Um, and because of the precise dosing, unlike if you went to, into a into a consumption lounge and you and someone gave me a hit off a joint that I have no idea what the potency of that joint is and how it's going to affect me. Conversely, I know exactly what five milligrams is going to do to me. You know, I know exactly how that's going to make me feel. And the benefit of beverages, you'll you'll know how it's going to make you feel very quickly, as opposed to waiting, you know, an hour to get processed through your liver and converting into a different cannabinoid altogether. Um, so I do see that you know the the industry continuing to grow and thrive. I'm sorry, my windows are open, so I fly. Um, uh, so I do see the industry con continuing to thrive. I do think you know it's interesting to me the cannabis industry tends to work against itself off, off, a lot. So when I say that, I mean specifically with consumption lounges, unless the cannabis industry, I think, starts to think about it in the context of we need to take small steps and you're not going to leap into 
uh, this environment where, you know, people are toking up right next to someone who maybe just wants to have a cannabis infused beer, right? Um, the smoking is the biggest issue. It's, it's the biggest issue as it relates to municipalities and the smell that comes with it. And, and so, you know, here in Napa, I've been lobbying, I'm a part of the Napa Valley Cannabis Association as well as the CBA. And I've been lobbying my colleagues to say, hey, you know, like let's lobby for consumption lounges for edibles and beverages only. And people who are legacy uses of cannabis are vehemently against it. Cause they're like, if we can't smoke, we don't want it. I'm like, well, that's a little short-sighted, <laughs> you know, because maybe one leads to the other, you know, but the reality is in an environment like Napa Valley, where it's all about aroma and taste and pro, you're not going to get a consumption lounge on main street. It's not going to happen. So how about we walk before we run? Right. Yeah. And, and the bigger opportunity is having mm -hmm. cannabis anywhere. You can have a beverage, which means you clearly cannot smoke in those environments, which is restaurants and, and event spaces like that. So, yeah, the long game is certainly to have it available everywhere. And, and you know, having the ability to create smokeless consumption lounges would be a great first step because then people can enjoy the experience without potentially smoking if they don't want to smoke themselves or, or sit in a cloud of smoke, which no matter how good your exhaust system is, you're sitting in a cloud of smoke. So, yeah. um, well, ho hopefully your colleagues can see and understand that and will and support that. Certainly on behalf of the Cannabis Beverage Association, we support that. <laughs> um, so, so Chris, maybe a couple last words and your thought around, you know, where the space is going around beer, what, what we can think about cannabis infused beer and, and um, anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think I'll, I'll agree. I think the future is bright for um, everything in the space. I think beer will just continue to grow. Um, certainly, with uh, the availability of of having access to uh, better uh, components that are flavor driven in terms of emulsion, you know, live resins and and that whole piece has has been huge um, in terms of building in a profile that that harmonizes really well with beer um, and is synonymous with with uh, with hopping, um, I think uh, I think in the future, I think it's it's going to go back to what I what I mentioned earlier. It's just having the ability to to be able to uh, guide people into the industry and be able to do so uh, seamlessly with with you know hopefully with more than one uh, opportunity to to be able to do so. Right now, you know, our only opportunity is in in Southern California. So if we're producing the beer in Northern California, shipping it down to Southern California just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of financial sense. And at the end of the day, you know, whether it's cannabis or not, there's only so much meat on the bone um, at the end of the day. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people have this misconception that, that uh, any beverage sold in the cannabis industry should be marked up uh, just as, as, uh, as flour and all that stuff would, you know, so a lot of the guys that are working these dispensaries really need to be educated that you know, like, Hey, listen, like, that's not going to work for us. I don't think it's going to work for anybody. And I think it's, it's going to put us in a real bad situation um, moving forward. Um, those are the, those are the main things that I can think of. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think the future is bright. I think, I think the only limitation is, is having um, somebody with the willingness to, to uh, get in, get in the business and, and being able to cater to, to uh, larger, larger, uh, client bases. I think this new customer, um, when they get into the business, um, 
because they come from big beer. I think they, they have uh, probably the best understanding that I've seen um, since, since I've been, been in the business in here in California. And I think, I think they, they probably um, hold the most weight in terms of having the ability um, to, first of all, afford it, you know, that's, that's the hardest part is being able to capitalize that initial investment. Uh, Most places that are getting started don't have the willingness to, to make the spend for, you know, uh, 320 minute KHS canning line. You know what I mean? That that's, that's a, you know, million and a half dollar spend. So that's a, that's not, it's not exactly cheap and your ROI on that is going to be significant. Um, so I think I think based on kind of what I'm seeing and, and where things are going, I think we're poised and moving in the right direction. I think it's just, you know, at this point, um, the limitation is just on the amount of places that we can be able to co-pack and, and produce through. Well, I appreciate that. I know there's one final question that I'll, I'll try and get to and, and wrap into the closing here. Um, a question around some sort of negative connotation towards cannabis infused beverages from some other group. And I'm assuming that's alcohol producers, beer producers, or something along those lines. So there definitely is a little bit of that stigma still there in the challenge, but the reality is consumers consume both. Consumers appreciate and like both. So consumers are going to always consume both and finding the best way to support consumer preferences is really what we in the brand space are intending to do. And and obviously the supply chains needed to get there. So a lot of great opportunities for cannabis beverage in the future, hopefully, Anyone here is a brewer or retailer that's looking to get involved, please certainly reach out and do so either to the Cannabis Beverage Association, um, just CannabisBeverageAssociation.org, uh, or to any one of us, Chris, Tracy, myself, will always be available to answer any questions for you and happy to help you navigate um, you know, where, where you need to, to get involved. Um, oh, so the question is out the OGs not loving to see change. Well. That, that's every industry. OGs don't like to see change. But like I just said, consumers, we're human. We like change, even if it's driven by us or not, it's inevitable. So there, there's definitely um, a love for people that appreciate pairing, you know, good flour with good, you know, brewing or, or beverage techniques and creating high quality products. So, you know, if you have a love for the process and the product that you're putting out and give it to consumers and you focus on hospitality, I think everyone does appreciate that. So Thank you all again. Appreciate your time. Thank you to Chris and, and Tracy for your time this morning. Great to and see you, Lynn. Nice to see you, Chris. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Bye, guys. Stay well. We are proud to keep CBP 100% free and accessible to all. If you enjoyed conversations like this, please hit the subscribe button.